Matthew chapter number 23, before we read a few verses, I want to just say this. I've spent my whole life around church, several different churches, but uh, Kentucky, Arkansas for my bachelor's degree, California, I worked for six years, now in Pittsburgh, all over the country, I've been in church. And unanimously, in every region that I've been in, the number one complaint that is leveled against people of faith is that people of faith are hypocritical. And by hypocritical, I mean that we knowingly and we willfully sustain a gap between the life that we project and the life that we actually practice. And that is something that the unsaved world or the unchurched world looks at and they have a problem. I will say at the beginning that I do think that our church is a bit more authentic than many that I've seen. And I'm very thankful for that, although I'm sure we still have some work to do. It's interesting to me, though, that that complaint that the unsaved have is also a complaint that God himself has. God is someone who despises duplicity. God is someone who is incensed by insincerity. God does not like hypocrisy, and the gap between what we project and what we practice is something that is a, is a topic that has a lot of press in Scripture. If you read the Gospels for any length of time, you will find Jesus dealing with this over and over and over and over again. And you'll quickly realize that God hates hypocrisy. And I want you to see some of that this morning. Matthew 23 is where we're at. Let's look at verse number 13. We're going to read the first phrase of this verse. It says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, there's a comma, and here's the descriptor for the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus calls them hypocrites with an exclamation point. Look at verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. There it is again, hypocrites. Verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're getting the pattern now, right? Verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, same thing. Verse 29, same thing. Seven different times Jesus says the same exact thing to his audience and calls them hypocrites. And this morning, I want us to see hypocrisy. I also want us to see the opposite of hypocrisy, which is authenticity. And authenticity is a quality that is so elusive that you do not arrive there by accident. You don't just kind of wish that you'll be authentic and then magically arrive there one day. It is something that you have to choose. And that's the choice I want to encourage you to make this morning is just simply this, I choose to be authentic. I want to start in Matthew 23 this morning. I'm not going to be able to cover the whole chapter verse by verse just for sake of time, but I'm going to be able to pick the high points. And I, I launch from Matthew 23 because if there was ever a more scathing rebuke of hypocrisy in a description of what hypocrisy is, I cannot find it. This has to be the, the worst rebuke and best description of hypocrisy that we could ever find. And this is by none other than the Lord Jesus. And I want us to get a good, good picture of what hypocrisy looks like before we try to fix the problem and be authentic. So let me tell you a few things according to Matthew 23 of what hypocrisy looks like. It could definitely be more than this, but it's not less than this. I would say that hypocrisy looks like this. Hypocrites tend to live for their own glory. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23 verse 5. He says, but all their works, talking about the hypocrites, they do for, and you can mark this or underline this, to be seen of men. 
They make broad their phylacteries. These are the, the little boxes that they would put around their head that contain scripture. They make them broad and big so people will see them. They enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the uppermost room at the feast and the chief seats in the synagogue. They want to be up high. They want to be on a pedestal. They want people to look at them. Verse number seven, and greetings in the markets to be called of men, rabbi, rabbi. They love people to run to them and teacher, teacher, help me. I have respect. I'm, I'm looking up to you. And he says, they may as well just slap a little sticker on their back that says, look at me, I'm spiritual. That's, that's what hypocrites do. They want to have glory of men. They want to be seen of men. They want people to think highly of them as they sing, as they pray, as they worship, as they give. Everything they do is look at me. That I'm going to bring my little Operation Christmas Child shoebox in, but I can't just bring it in and set on the table. I'm going to bring it in, and I'm going to carry it real big with me, and then I'm going to set it right next to me so everyone around me sees my box and gives me a pat on the back. Oh, look at you. You're doing that. Good job. And then I'm going to carry it real big to the table, and I'm going to make a big deal so people will look Look at me. I, I want to get credit for this. I want, I want respect for this. I want praise. I want admiration. I want to be seen of men. This is exactly what Jesus rebuked in Matthew chapter number six, part of the Sermon on the Mount, when he told people, look, when you do your alms, when you give to people that are in need, don't sound a trumpet. Don't make a big deal about it. He says, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Jesus says they do this, the Pharisees, who are the Bible thumpers of the day, they are the people who take the Bible very seriously. They confront error. They separate themselves from the world. They're hypersensitive to the application of God's word. You say, what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. That's all good to take the Bible seriously, to be, to be hypersensitive to an application of it, to want to separate from the world. That's all good. But Jesus said of their heart that, look, your lips profess me, but your heart is far from me. That's the problem. You're doing this with the wrong motives. You say their, their heart was far from God. Where was their heart? Where he told us in Matthew 6, their heart was to be seen of men. Their heart was to impress other people. Their, their heart was to look at me. You say, well, should I hide my spirituality? No. Your Christian walk should be very personal, but it shouldn't be private. You're not supposed to hide your Christian life, and it's not supposed to be, oh, I go to church, so let me keep that a secret. Let me never tell anybody. That I don't want them to know that I go to church. I'm reading my Bible. Let me cover it up. Don't know that I'm reading my Bible. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. But when you're doing prayer, reading your Bible, giving, going to church, whatever it may be, when you're doing that and you're doing it for yourself and so that people will look at you, that's a problem. And Jesus said they were doing it so that people would give them glory. And they, hey, look, if that's what you're going after, you have your reward. He said, you want to put a spotlight on yourself? Fine. People are going to look at you. They may think more highly of you. But don't ask anything of me because I'm not giving you anything. You got what, what you're asking for. They may respect you. In the long run, it'll work against you. But I'm not giving you anything. That's it. Don't be that. Don't be the hypocrite that wants to live for the glory of men. There's kind of the opposite of this sometimes that hypocrites do as well, though. Hypocrites tend to live to please others. Look at verse number 15 of this chapter. This verse is so intriguing to me. Verse 15. I've seen this happen over and over and over again. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye can pass sea and land to make one proselyte. You say, what's a proselyte? A proselyte is a convert. It's, it's a Jewish person going to try to reach a pagan person to convert them to Judaism and to say, okay, now you have a religion. Now, you have, now, you have, uh, now, now you're in. I've had people, as I witnessed to them or shared the gospel with them, tell, tell, told me, don't try to proselytize me. That means don't try to convert me. He says, you go to great 
lengths to try to proselytize, to try to get a convert. Is that bad? No, that's not bad. But a hypocrite is doing this. And then he says, and when he is made. See, when he is made, what's that mean? It means that after you've taught him, here's my list of rules. Here's the things you need to do. Here's, here's, here's all the little intricacies. Here's what you need to wear. Here's a, when you make them, when you produce them, when you, when you hold them to your standards, when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. That's strong language. What Jesus is saying here is there's someone, you go, you reach them, and you're a hypocrite. So now they listen to you, and now they're twice as bad as you are. They drank the Kool-Aid, and now they're serving Kool-Aid, and the Kool-Aid is twice as strong as you made it. That's what you've done to this person. But all of that was rooted in, at first, you came to them, and they looked up to you, and you made them that way. You started to tell them, here's all the things you need to do, don't do, whatever, outside of Scripture. You started to weigh all this upon them, and now they started to, out of a heart of trying to please you and want to please you, now you have produced a hypocrite, and that is devastating to somebody long term. And can I tell you the truth? Playing to the demands of others runs in direct opposition to authenticity. We oftentimes feel pressure to measure up to people's scrutiny or people's standards or what they expect of us or what they think of us. But people-pleasing is a trap and it kills authenticity. And a lot of us have lived our lives on the exhaustive treadmill of trying to please other people, myself included. That I'm trying to please and I'm trying to make you happy and I'm trying to make you happy. And before you know it, there's this little crack between who you are and who you appear to be. And that starts to widen and widen and widen and widen. Before you know it, there's a grand canyon between who you actually are and who you appear to be. Because you're trying to please other people. This is what Paul said. You say, how, how do I get around that? Well, you do what, what Paul did. He was great. First Thessalonians 2. He says, when we came to the Thessalonians, our exhortation was not of deceit. It was not of uncleanness. It was not in guile. He said, we were not deceitful. We were not nasty. We were not crafty. That's not what we did. We, we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. He says, my heartbeat when I came to you, our heartbeat when we came to you was not to please you. It was to please God because we know that God tries our hearts. God sees us. God knows our motives. God knows if we're doing this sincerely or not. It's God that did this. So we didn't use flattering words. You know, we didn't use a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. That's what Paul says. Was I trying to flatter you? Was I trying to impress you? Was I trying to live up to your expectations? Was I trying to please you? No, I was not. I was living for the audience of one. I didn't have a mask. I wasn't plastic. I wasn't insincere. I was real and I tried to please God. So hypocrites, yes, they want glory, but sometimes they want to please everybody else. Also hypocrites tend to fixate on the external. This is the, the longest passage really on, in this whole chapter of where Jesus rebukes them twofold for the same thing. Look at verse number 25. I think this, this is telling that Jesus would hit this twice. I, he puts special emphasis on this one. Verse number 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within you're full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. 
He said, you're worried about the outside being dirty, but inside it's filled with gunk and nastiness. When you're drinking from a cup, the inside is the most important thing. So clean the outside before you take care of, clean the inside before the outside. He says the same thing again, verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whited sepulchers, which which indeed appear to be beautiful on on the outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I personally am very thankful for the environment I grew up in. I grew up in a, in a good Christian home, in a good Christian church, and I could probably nitpick it to death, and, and I don't like to focus on the negatives, but I will this morning for a bit. If I could focus on a negative from my personal upbringing, there was a constant focus on the external in the church that I grew up in. There was a, there was a big time focus on the outside and not nearly enough on the inside. And it got to the point, I mean, I'm junior high, I'm little, I'm 12, 13. And it got to the point where I couldn't walk in the church lobby without being Inspector Gadget. And wanting to look and see, are, are they here? Are they not here? Are they, is, what color is their hair? How long is their hair? Is it to the ear? Is it not to the ear? What are they wearing? Is she in pants? Is she in a dress? Is, is he in a suit? Is that a nice suit? Did he iron a shirt? Did he, uh, over and over and over again. I, I, I'm still in recovery. I have not fully recovered from this. I'm a work in progress, okay? But it's taken a long time to break that down and to try to get over looking on the outside and not being nearly as concerned as I should be about the inside. Truth be told, some of you may be also. You say, how would I know if I'm there? I'm not big on object lessons. You know this. Probably twice a year I do an object lesson. But today, I am, I'm giving you an object lesson. It's 18 inches by 18 inches. It's right here. Okay? I purposely did not wear a tie today, and I purposely did not shave my face today. I have a baby face, and I can't even grow a beard, but I still didn't shave it. This is Wednesday morning, okay? This is taking a long time to get this way. I've been planning this for a while. That's not a joke. That's true. I shave twice a week. But I purposely did not do that, because if you've sat here for 15 minutes and had a conniption over whether or not I had an overpriced three three-foot-long piece of cloth that was invented in the 1600 by mercenaries on my neck or not, if that has, has caused you to miss the first 15 minutes of the sermon, let me tip your hand. You have a problem. <laughs> I'm being honest. Real talk. That's a problem. I have, I, literally, I can't make this up. I, my brother and I were talking about this the other day. <laughs> I heard someone growing up say that goat, a goatee, facial hair, was an indicator of spiritual decay, and that should tip your hand and let you know that someone is, is on, I'm sorry, Jim, that someone is on the road to, to spiritual decay because of the exact facial hair that they have. That's ludicrous. Like it's, ab- I don't even know how you could remotely possibly get there by Scripture. It's exactly what the hypocrites did. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. They did everything by the outside and judged all of it there. Meanwhile, the, the inside decayed. And to make matters worse, this stuff doesn't even work. It'd be one thing if it, like, it actually produced something practically helpful a little bit, but God said don't do it. But that's not the way it worked. Like It doesn't even work. Paul, 
obliterates this stuff at the end of Colossians 2. I don't have time to build it all. You can, you can go read it on your own time. But Paul murders legalism. He murders this idea that I judge people's spirituality by my man-made list of rules and, and they have to measure and they have to do this and observe the Sabbath and, and all these sorts of things. And he describes this and this is what he says about it. He says that this has a show of wisdom and will worship. He says this appears to be wise And there's will worship. You're taking your will and your ability to twist your own arm behind your back and your ability to white knuckle your behavior and you're worshiping that. But when it's all said and done, there it's not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Paul says there's no honor there and it actually ends up satisfying the flesh. It's a lot of external conformity, but it doesn't suppress the internal urges. It doesn't work. And Jesus knows this, and he looks at the hypocrites and says, don't do that. Don't be the person that runs around being petty, majoring on silly things that the Bible doesn't even spell out or not, and and try to fixate on the externals. Don't be that guy, don't be that gal. It's hypocrisy. Fourth, I would say this, hypocrites tend to have blurred spiritual vision. And this really amplifies how bad this is, because you can't even see it. Here's what Jesus says in verse number 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers within the, in the blood of the prophets. He says, you build a monument to the prophets that your fathers, your granddaddy or your great-granddaddy or your forefathers, they murdered. They didn't listen to them. You read Isaiah and Jeremiah, you read these, like they don't listen to those guys. The messengers of God, they don't listen to them. He says, you build them a monument and you go visit it and you say, oh, we love Isaiah. And if we had lived back then, we wouldn't have murdered the prophets. We wouldn't have been partakers in their blood. We see the error of the ways. We're better than that. There's no way I would have done that. Skip down to verse 34 for sake of time. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify And some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. And this is a bold verse, verse 35, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. On your heads is going to be more than all of the blood that's been shed previously, all of the martyrdom, more than that. And here's, here's how he describes it. From the blood of the righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Bacharias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. The Jews arranged their Old Testament The books, they they arrange them in a different order, which is fine. It's not a problem. But the first martyr in the Jewish Old Testament, if you were a Jewish man in the first century reading the Old Testament, the first martyr you'd come across would be Abel. The last martyr you would come across would be Zacharias, the son of Zacharias. And he says, you take all of the bloodshed in the Old Testament, all of the wrong done, all of the slain of the prophets, all the persecution, and what you're going to do is worse than all of that combined. You see the error in what they should not have done. Okay, good for you, kudos. But you can't see the error in yourself. They killed the prophets. You're about to kill God. That's what he's saying. You you see their problem, but you cannot, you're spiritually farsighted. You can't see anything up close, but you can see everything far away. And you can pick out everybody else's problems, but you you can't look in the mirror and see your own problem. See, what's the solution to that? Well, the same solution to physical farsightedness, really. You farsighted physically, you go to the doctor, he does, he does an exam, and all of a sudden he puts on some sort of glasses or some sort of lenses, and you're like, I can see now. 
And then he writes your prescription, you take it home and you try to fix the problem. That's part of why we have church. Part of my job is to take the word of God, which is a mirror, and to hold it up and say, look in there for a little bit and see if there's a problem and hopefully try to give some sort of prescription or some sort of takeaway that you can take and work to try to fix the problem. And perhaps today you are, you're lifting it up and you're, and you're seeing, oh snaps, that's me. Don't just set it down, look at it hard. Because hypocrites tend to have this spiritual vision where they can't see. And you need someone. They needed Jesus to come along and to tell them, here's the problem. Look at it. This is not good. And here's what hypocrisy does. I don't have time to give you everything that it does, but I at least want to give you a couple. Look back at verse number four. Jesus tells us something very specifically that hypocrisy does to other people. The hypocrites, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. He says, when you're hypocritical, you burden people. You put weights on other people. You make the Christian life heavy. He says this in verse number 13. This is strong. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. He says, you shut the doors to heaven. He says, come to church all dressed up, and look down your smug little nose at someone else who doesn't look just like you or act just like you or isn't just like you or they haven't been around church their whole life. Look down your smug little nose at them. You know what they're going to do? They're going to feel that. They're going to feel unwelcomed. They're going to feel unwanted. They're going to feel the weight that you're putting upon them. And they're going to run from it. And he says, in so doing, you have barred the doors of heaven. You have stopped that person from getting to God and from getting to heaven because of your hypocrisy. Pastor, you're focused a lot on this and dress. Are you against wearing ties? No, I'm not against wearing ties. I'm not, honestly. And if you know my heart, you know that. I know you, that many of you, you like to wear a suit. You like to wear a tie. You, you like to dress up because I've, I'm doing it for God. I love him and I want to, out of respect and admiration for him, I want to give God my best. That's beautiful. It's perfect. But there's some other guy who wears jeans and, and a collared shirt because I want to come and someone else is going to visit our church and they're probably not wearing a suit if they visit. Most of the time they don't. And, and I want them to feel at home and welcome and I don't want them to feel like there's this threshold that they have to jump over a dress code. So I want them to feel welcome and I want them to get the gospel. That's beautiful too. Different things, both beautiful. But you could also wear a suit and have this, look at me, I'm good. I got a new suit. I want praise. I want adulation. Wrong. You can wear jeans or shorts or whatever it is that you want to wear to be, oh, I'm cool, and they'll think I'm hip or they're whatever. Wrong. It's, it's not so much what you're doing. It's the motivation behind it. And Jesus says, don't, don't be that person. Don't be hypocritical and see it in yourself. If you are being that way, see it in yourself. Because if you don't, you make the Christian life heavy for people and you can prevent them from going to heaven. That's a big deal. So don't be a hypocrite. You say, okay, I don't want to be a hypocrite. What, what would I do? Well, be authentic. Well, what's authenticity look like? Well, let me tell you, and I'll tell you briefly. Being authentic is just being genuine. It's being real. It's not forcing something. It flows from what is true. The biblical word often for it is sincere. We talked about this months ago as we preached through Philippians chapter number one. Paul prayed for the Philippians that they would be sincere and without offense until the day of Jesus Christ. Anyone remember, I won't call on you, but anyone remember what that word sincere meant, what the definition was? 
couple, all right, a couple of you said it, without wax is what it meant. You said, without wax, what does that mean? How's that authentic? In, in Bible days, potters would make a, a vessel and at times they'd mess up and they'd crack it. And to cover their crack, they would fill it with wax. Instead of saying, oh man, defective, shelve it, I gotta make another one. They would cover it with wax, they would fill in the crack, and then they would paint over it to make it look authentic, to make it look sincere, to make it look real or genuine. And they would sell it, and then someone would take it home, they'd put hot water in there to make tea or coffee or whatever it is that they're making, and wouldn't you know it, the hot water melts the wax, and then the thing starts to leak everywhere. And they realize, I got gypped, this wasn't real, this was insincere, this was not without wax, it had wax, I, I got ripped off. And Paul says, don't be, don't be waxy, don't be plastic, don't live a life that's filled with wax, be sincere, be authentic, be genuine, that's what authenticity looks like. You say, okay, pastor, I don't want to be hypocritical, I want to be authentic. How would I be authentic? Thank you for asking, let me tell you. First of all, judge yourself. If you're sitting here thank you, thanking, thank you, pastor, for preaching this message. Thank you. They need it, and they need it, and they need it, and they need it, and they need it. Just pump the brakes, Speedy Gonzalez. Like, stop. You know who needs this? Me. You know who needs this? You, the person sitting in your seat. That's, we, need, we need to look at ourselves. This isn't designed to be, oh, I can't wait for this to drop on the podcast so I can text a link to this to all the people in my life that I know who need this. That's, that's not it. That's not it. Look at the person on your driver's license and then re-listen to the sermon. That's what Matthew 7 is all about. You know that verse we love to, to quote when we tell people, don't judge me. Judge not that you be not judged. The verse really is about just judging yourself which you could apply and tell someone else to judge themselves and not you. But really, it's meant to be, look at yourself. It goes on to say that if you judge somebody, you'll, you'll have the same criteria applied to you. And you have a little, someone has a little splinter in their eye, but you have a baseball bat sticking out of your eye. So don't, don't do that. Look at yourself first and look in the mirror and judge yourself. And, and primarily your motives. That's, that's the biggest thing that Jesus gets after over and over and over again is our motives, that proper actions with improper motives don't please God. To look at that. I would secondly say this, let God judge others. You judge you and you let God judge other people because he's the best at it. He's a just judge. Way better than Judge Judy will ever be. He's the best at being a judge and knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong and knowing what's fair, so turn it over to him. Paul got this. He told the Corinthians who wanted to kind of judge him and look at him and question his motives and what he was doing. And I think you're out to get us and you're trying to use us for money. They, they voiced all that stuff to Paul and Paul responded to it. And he says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I don't even judge myself. So look, you want to you judge me? It's piddly. Whoop-de-doo. Why? Because I know nothing by myself, yet I'm hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. He said, I know who's judging me. I know who knows my motives. God will reveal what needs to be revealed. God knows what's happening in my heart. God, God has a way of penetrating through all of our little disguises. God sees behind the mask. God is judging, so I don't need to worry about you judging me. God's going to take care of it. You said, Pastor, hold on. 
Didn't you tell us a couple months ago that Paul prayed for the Philippians that they would increase and abound in love and judgment? I sure did. That's the Bible. So how am I supposed to increase in judgment, which is spiritual discernment? How am I supposed to increase in that, but at the same time, let God judge everybody else? So let's, let's suppose you have a 14-year-old or 16-year-old kid, grandkid, whatever it may be, and there's another kid around their age in the neighborhood who's 16, who got a DUI, doesn't have a license, but got a DUI, went to juvenile, on probation, shows no signs of remorse, just, you ain't gonna tell me what to do, old man, curses at you, whatever, and they want your grandkid or your kid to come spend the night at their house. Should we take our brain out, set it on the table, say, who am I to judge? I mean, it's, not my jo- it's not my job to judge that person, just, you know, go, go on ahead. No, that would be stupid, right? It is, it is your job as parent or grandparent to try to discern and to try to judge and see that person. So there are, there are times, and Paul prays for the church, that they would increase in that spiritual discernment, that there are things going to affect your life or you personally that, that you need to look at and you need to try to weigh and you have to, with the help of the Holy Spirit and God's Word, make the best decision that you can. That is real life. But there's a whole nother plethora of things that we oftentimes insert ourselves into and we want to judge and we want to run around with a little ruler making sure everyone meets our standards or here's the criteria, you do this, that have nothing to do with you that really is not helpful and your motives are wrong and that's what you're not supposed to do. And even if you do have to judge somebody and you have to discern, is that person a good influence on my child or not, which you have to do, even there, there are some biblical uh, prescriptions that you can take away. Like you have to love them first. Like it needs to be out of a heart of love that you would do that. You never judge motives because you can't know somebody's motives. It's God's job to judge that. Don't judge by appearance. The Bible is very clear on that. Don't just look on the outside and judge by appearance. And don't judge harshly. And by harshly, I mean don't hold them to a higher standard than you, than you hold yourself. All of those are biblical. and All those are clear. And I don't have time to, to give you the verses for them all. But, but when you do have to judge... Do it lovingly, don't do it harshly, don't look at appearance and don't try to judge motives, but you do have to be discerning. Other than that, you turn it over to God. And you say, God, it's your job. It's not my job to be the judge of the world. It's your job, so I don't need to do it. Thirdly, this is simple, this is ultra simple, but this is very needed. Just admit that you have torn desires. Just admit and be real and attest to the fact that you got issues. And so do I. Like for real, literally. <laughs> just admit, and I'm not saying walk around and just tell everybody, hey, I'm Bob, I got issues. But <laughs> j- don't shy away from that. Don't act like they're not there. Don't act like you've arrived. That's what hypocrites do. That you've got it all figured out and everything is honky-dory and everything is great and and you, you never have any spiritual issues. We all have many times where we know what we should do. We maybe even want to do it, but we end up not doing it. And we don't follow through on, on what, we, what we know we should do. And I'm not saying let's just be okay with that and act like it doesn't need to be fixed and just, you know, hey, I have problems and I don't want to fix them. That's not what I'm saying. But you've got to admit that you're a work in progress. My Bible tells me that I am God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in two good works. That's an awesome verse. God saved me and I am his workmanship. Some people take that and say, well, look at me. I am, I am God's work of art. 
Original masterpiece created by God himself. Isn't this awesome? I'm his workmanship. And created into good works. You should see the good works I do. They're amazing. <laughs> Some people do that. Okay, we are his workmanship. That's beautiful. That's the truth. And that's by his grace, by the way. But Philippians also tells us that he, Jesus, who has begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that should be encouraging. That he's not going to give up on us. But it means there's a chance that you would, that he would maybe want to give up on you and you would think that because you got issues all the time and you need to know that he's not going to give up on you. And that means that he's going to keep working and working and working like until the end, like for forever. Just wrap your mind around this, okay? God created the entirety of the universe with all of its complexities in six days and said, good, finished, stamp of approval, awesome. I've been 20 years in the making. 20 years in the making. That's, that's a long process and that process has to continue because I got problems. I have things that need to be fixed. My heart needs to be excavated over and over and over again. This means that I'm not this prideful, look at my work of art, look at me. It means I'm a piece of work. It means I have problems. And we can't be afraid to admit that. If church can't be that place where we get together and say, you know what? Hey, I have some issues. Can you help me? Pray with me. Let me admit it. That needs, that needs to be part of the fabric of church. And if it's not there, then it, le it leads to hypocrisy. Fourthly, find your identity in Christ's love. Last thing I say, and this may be the most important one, especially if you're a people pleaser. It's very sad when we find our identity in trying to make other people love us because it inevitably shows us that we have not grasped the love that Jesus already has for us. When you're trying to get love from other people and respect from other people and approval from other people, it shows us that we really just haven't comprehended the approval and the love that we have from Jesus already and it's intact and it's there. This, the love of Christ is supposed to free us from seeking love in all the wrong places. This is why Paul would pray for the Ephesians that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says, I want you to know the love of Jesus in an ever-increasing way. And this is going to help you to be filled with the fullness of God because it's when you see the love of Christ and what it is in all of its enormity, in all of its magnanimity, when you see that and you know that suddenly your heart is defended against being kidnapped from all the other things that want to take your love and your affection. When you see how he feels towards you and you feel towards him, all of a sudden you, your heart becomes bulletproof from, from now being murdered by all these, other, all these other mercenaries that want to take away your love and your affection and earn them for themselves and say, look at me and love me and please me and live for me. And when, when you realize that it's Christ's love and you get a hold of that, it will change you in some deep and profound ways. When you get that and you get the grace that he's given you, I love what Paul Tripp said. He says, no one celebrates the grace of Jesus more than the person that realizes he needs it desperately. No one gives grace better than the person who's deeply persuaded that he needs it himself. 
When you understand I need this and I got this and God gave me grace and God loved me, that will change you in ways that I could never change you. Only God and his love and his grace can. And it will completely disarm the hypocrisy from your life. It will, it will take it all away and it will smash it into little pieces. So if you're looking for a place to start, I could give you more, but if you're looking for a place to start, start here to be authentic. Judge you. Take a good, long, hard look in the mirror. Stop running around with your ruler and judging other people. Admit that you have issues and celebrate the grace and love of God that's there to try to help you get through those issues and to help you. It's not, God's not going to want you just to wallow and to be there with your issues. He wants to get below the surface. He wants to attack your heart. He wants you to see that, that you need him to live the Christian life authentically and live there and dwell there and watch what that will do to you. It will change you over and over and over again. And I'm thankful that our church, that there are so many right in front of me today, there are so many real authentic people. I love that. I celebrate that. I am grateful for that. But I dare say that probably each and every one of us have some work to do when it comes to being hypocritical and we could all choose to be a bit more authentic, maybe a lot more authentic. So let's make the choice.